Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240, for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, bonds. Uh, as I had, as you saw in that announcement, I was a week ahead of myself. Midterm isn't until next week. Now we review on Monday of next week, and then the test is on Wednesday of next week. As far as this week goes, the chapter on bonds, chapter seven, I won't do math uh, from the chapter on the exam. It'll be what I've done, to, what I've do today and a little bit on Wednesday. It'll be the terminology and the concepts of bonds, not any of the math. And on Wednesday, I will give you a quiz. Uh, now, I'm going to give you extra time for this one more than I usually do. It's just a heads up on the math questions, uh, future value, present value, annuities, and that kind of thing. Five questions, and you'll have more time. Uh, I'll give you 20 minutes instead of the usual 10 minutes, and that should give you a good prep up for the math, at least most of the math questions on the midterm, uh, doing that. And then again, like I said, next week is just midterm week, and it's all about getting you ready for that happy thing that we're going to do together. And. What was I thinking? There was something else I was going to mention, too. can't remember what it was, but um, yeah, make sure you get your uh, Excel sheets in order this weekend, your templates and all that, and it'll help you to know the, the, the questions on the quiz will look very similar to the ones on the exam, just different numbers, so that should help you prep for the exam, too. Uh, but today is a happy day we just talk about bonds and it's the terminology there it is a kind of extensive I mean it, it's just remembering and getting those in your note card and all that kind of stuff but first we're going to look at the numbers and it is a grouchy day on what just a, a grumbly day let's say the it was a volatile uh, bouncing around but it stayed pretty much in negative territory, at least on the Dow and the S&P 500. Now the NASDAQ kind of did a, a little bit, but even there it wasn't much of anything. Uh, just everything is down a little bit on the Dow. Yeah, huh, isn't that interesting? The Dow is down a little more than the S&P 500, which is a little unusual. NASDAQ tried to do a little bit, but it wasn't much. Now. Here's one, crude oil, as I had said, I wasn't worried about it being above 90. It find, it's finding its way back into that band that, where the top end was 88. And you'll see gas prices never really did make much of a move upward. They did for a while, but they're easing back already. Just such a supply of gasoline in the pipeline. So that's good. And gold is really taking a tailspin away from $2,000 an ounce. Good news. We're in pretty good shape. Uh, it looks like strong economic numbers. Certainly that um, 
budget fight in Washington did kind of concern the markets because if the government shuts down, then a lot of big companies and small companies, just tens of thousands of companies, don't get paid. There's no contracts for the work that they do for the government. So that kind of a budget crisis does worry the markets. And when it was over, <clears throat> if it had not been resolved last weekend, the markets would have taken a pretty hard drop. But as it was, they're just back to business as usual, and there's not really much news to get them excited. Gold down. And uh, over here, 10-year bond, yield up, price down. And so investors are selling bonds, getting out of debt, and they're getting out of equities. So it's kind of one of those things where money is getting to the sidelines, funds are getting to the sidelines. If you look at the S&P 500 volume for the day, you'll see that just another lousy day for volume. Typical 3.7 billion shares today, uh, 1.5 billion shares. So uh, just not, the traders are just staying away right now. And one thing that I, I'm going to make a speculation here is that once you see that volume starting to pick up, you'll know that we're out of recovery phase and we're in expansion phase of the business cycle. But right now it's still a recovery because the money is staying off the playing field. And once the investors get more confidence and start putting blood into the game, then that will signal that, yeah, we're in the expansion phase. But for now, we're still kind of wait and see. Over here, something, uh, just other good news. Notice that the euro and the British pound are both tailing, depreciating against the dollar. I mean, this is, we're going back, look right here. See the euro right here? It was as high as a, about $1.12 for a euro. Now it is sunk to $1.04, uh, $1.04, $1.04. In other words, we're getting back to the euro at parity with the dollar. In other words, one for one. And we haven't seen that in a while. What's going on over in Europe? The big factor on the other side of the Atlantic is there is a serious factory slowdown going on. And I mean, that can't be good. Factories not producing, that means the jobs aren't there, the products aren't coming out, consumers aren't buying. So that's why you're seeing this, uh, the euro and the British pound sliding as much as they are. It's just not a good situation over on that side. So as their situation deteriorates economically and ours improves, the dollar strengthens against these currencies. Or put it the other way, those currencies are weakening against the dollar. It's not hard once you get the hang of how the currency numbers work. Yeah, and of course you see the Japanese yen which is backwards, quoted backwards, it's depreciating too. The rest of the world is not doing so well and we're lolling our way into the future. Uh, you know, th th that makes me sad. No, it doesn't. But uh, you know, we, don't want those we don't want the rest of the world in a recession because they buy our exports. So 
it's good news in a way, the dollar is strong, but at the same time, that's not, we don't want them to go to hell either. Uh, and Nikkei started out bullish late uh, last night, and then it just slid down until it finally ended down for the day. Uh, not sure what that was about. They started out feeling pretty frisky when I was looking at the their trading. It was trading in late last night, but it didn't stay there. And of course, the pound is sliding away there too. So there you go. Uh, more evidence of that global slowdown that's sort of the opposite of what's happening here. Again, one reason for that is we address the inflation problem, tighten the money supply, raise our interest rates, which hit our economy, but we did it proactive, we did it very uh, aggressively and didn't waste any time getting it underway. Now we've got the worst of the interest rate rises over with, and hence, as a result of that, we're recovering more uh, faster than the Europeans and the British. For what it's worth, a couple of stocks just to look at, just for some, let's look at some stocks kind of stuff. And since I went to see a movie last night, A Haunting in Venice at the AMC, let's see how AMC is doing. And it's up for the day, strong, but notice that that is a low price. That's cheap stock, $8.13 a share. It's something, maybe, but at the same time, look at that beta. I mean, that's, that's a beta with, a, with cap locks on, uh, 2.05. You don't see them that high. That's a, in other words, it's a high-risk stock. And you see that there's no P.E. ratio. That's because the company is losing money. Negative five, is that negative five, almost negative six dollars per share? So the company is obviously not in great shape. However, it's all, it has prospects. It's in a highly competitive market. AMC is trying to upgrade all of its theaters, but it's behind the ball with chains like Marcus, which have already started these dinner theaters and all that some time ago. No dividend, but look at this price that it's going to go, to, it's projected to go to. Doing the math, just to keep that in your minds, Try that another way, calculator. Now there's no dividend yield, because <coughs> there's no dividend, but we can get the capital gain yield. Yahoo is predicting, four, four, holy cow, $16.63 a share one year from today. Divide that by the current price of $8.14 minus one, and survey says, oh, are you kidding me? Really? That's what I, you look at that and you say, I did, forgot to sur subtract the one, but I know I did, times 100. So they're predicting this stock is going to rise over the next year by 104%. 104.2, uh, percent Now that is a hella, uh, return. Of course, you're taking that massive risk of a beta, of a stock with a beta of 2.05, but you don't even need a dividend for that. I mean, 
If it does that, I don't know. I just took a position. For God's sake, again, do not ever invest in what I invest in. Because I am what's called a loser when I invest. I, I touch a stock and it starts plummeting. So, But anyway, I mean, I took a position in it early this morning because I saw it was beginning to rise. And spank me Jesus, look at that thing. It's going, it, if it hits 100, if it rises 104%, that means that you buy one round lot. That'd be 100 shares. 100 shares times $8, that'd be 800, uh, that'd be $800. Yeah, I mean, that would turn into more than $1,600 in a one-year hold on it. Uh, I mean, you can't beat that, but that bait is still nosebleed. Now, let's go to something completely, good grief, that thing is still pulling. The market is just sitting there looking stupid, kind of going down a little bit. And this stock is just plowing upward. Um, okay, now, let me look at this one. Does anyone, did anyone hear the news about Kellogg today? Okay, it's split into two separate companies. And let's see what the market thought of that with the main company, Kellogg. <laughs> Didn't think much of it, did it? 6.13% down. Well, that's one of those where the, uh, where the investors are saying they did not approve of that at all. That's a bad, and this is a beta stock with a low beta, 4.42. Price earnings ratio is saying that it's undervalued now. That's a lot of that's happened today. The price has gone down so much that the P.E. ratio is sliding. Basically, Kellogg is still there. Kellogg, it's got two different companies right now, and I can't remember what the trading symbols are, but this is the main one right here. And I mean, it's still Kellogg. It's still going to make cereal. And I, they're, that cereal, the different cereals they make, they're great, as Tony Tiger says. So the question is, you know, is this really, is the market overreacting? Well, yeah, markets do that. They'll be all pissed off and they'll, they'll take their toys and go home for a while. And once they realize that the company is still cruising along, making its cereals, being the big cereal company of the, the United States and other parts of the world, it's not going to die. And so the markets will probably get their crap together. Now look at the capital gain and dividend yield. This one pays a dividend, so we can do both of them. $70.44 projected for one year divided by $52.44 now, minus one, then times it by 100, and then add the dividend yield, which is 4.03%. Survey set, whoa, that's a darn nice return for a beta of 0.42. You got a return of 38.35% projected on it. Like I said, you know, the market's just beating, beating the hell out of the stock now. 
and they've dropped the price so much the price earnings ratio is pointing to way undervalued or at least uh, a decent amount undervalued and so yeah that's a feasible return and that's a low that's a pretty safe stock unlike AMC which is a high beta stock so you expect a darn good return on that here's Kellogg and sometimes that's that's what you expect is when the market just initially reacts really badly to some kind of big news I mean what really does this you have to ask is this news that's going to destroy the company or is this news that's just kind of gotten a grumblies out of the investors this looks like the latter category of of investments right here uh, of situations right here where the stock see how do you see the slide it just dropped off the cliff this morning but look what happened when the uh, bulls began to, uh, when all the bearish sentiment it had its say it tore the stock down and now this and then the stock begins to recover and now no more bad news so probably we well I shouldn't say this but I would say don't be surprised by Wednesday when we meet I'll look at this stock again and you'll see that it is recovering the bargain hunters will step in and say oh this is a stock I'll buy for heaven's sakes anyway so there's a couple of different companies very different uh, different industries one's in uh, one's entertainment the other is uh, basic food products you know it's just one of those things where you look at different markets you see that there isn't one single industry or one single company you should look at you should look around see what's out there there are a lot of different companies that have a story to tell you and now you've got the tools to at least look at them as an intelligent informed investor and start thinking for yourselves <laughs> I'm looking at this these by the way and I've said this before these are the these little bars vertical bars are the volume and you notice you see that spike of volume there as the news came into the market and there was selling that was selling activity and then right about here see where it stopped see that that spike there that was a buy spike that was the bulls putting the brakes on the bears and you see how it skidded this the slide quit right there because the bulls started stepping back in bargain hunting and that surprisingly that that's not surprising at all the, but the bulls, uh, the real bulls said, ah, this is, this is ridiculous. We got to stop this. Start buying the stock because it's cheap now compared to what it was. If you look here, the 52 week high is clear up here at 77.17. Jeez. Kellogg hasn't changed. There's nothing different about Kellogg. It's still making decent cereals. So that's what we, where we go. Now, let me do bonds. And I'm going to write something on the board. I've written this before, and I'll just write it again here. Stock is sometimes called equity. That represents ownership. Bonds 
sometimes called debt, that represents lenders, lending, or borrowing. A company can finance itself with one or the other or both. A, co a company can issue stock, $50 a share on, a, on an offering for, let's say, 10 million shares. That would raise $50 a share for 10 million shares. That would raise $500 million. That would be new owners. That would be new voters for the board of directors. That would be new owners to pay dividends to, new owners to show up at the annual shareholders meetings and all that. Bonds are something different. Bonds are lending to the company issues bonds what it's doing is it's borrowing money. A, a, a company issues $10 million in bonds. That would mean that the company is borrowing $10 million from investors who want to lend money. The company, as far as stock goes, the company never has to pay anything back to those stockholders. They bought stock, they're in for the ride. They might get a dividend, but they're not, they don't have any right to a dividend. The stock might go up in price, but, that doesn't, but that's not the company. Well, the company could, would make it go up in price by doing the right things, but the company does not owe that stock, that money, that $500 million in from that offering. It doesn't owe it back to those shareholders. They're in. They're all in. And they're all at risk. They can either make money or lose money as the stock goes up and down in price in the secondary markets. That's all there is to it. The bondholders are different. They have to be paid back. That is an obligation. And it's the highest obligation the company has outside of its fiduciary duty to the shareholders. But the bondholders, they have to be satisfied. If you don't pay them back their money, they turn the company off. They'll just knock it, they'll liquidate it, unless a bankruptcy court protects the company in Chapter 11. So these bondholders have the prior claim. They have to be satisfied in a timely manner first. And if there's any money left over, that belongs to the shareholders, which they can get as dividend checks or they can get if the company puts the money back into the company and grows the stock, makes the stock price go up. But these bondholders, you have to take care of them first. The bondholders have a, a unique, uh, well, how should I put it? You, in your lifetime, if you haven't already, well, bonds generally, we're referring to long-term debt. 20, 30, 50 years. Okay, but it's different from, and they owe it back, just like you owe back the money when you borrow money for a house. That's a bond. It's actually a bond. When you borrow the money for a house, you're issuing a bond. The bank is buying the bond from you. There's a fundamental difference between consumer debt and corporate slash government debt. Consumer debt, the payments are made, those calculations we did for a mortgage payment, 
you'll do one on the quiz, and you'll do one on the exam. Those, those kinds of debts, um, your, each payment pays down some of the principal, it amortizes the debt, and it also pays the interest that is accumulated since your last payment. It services the debt. Corporate and government bonds like that, they don't pay down the principal during the life of the loan. All they pay is the interest on what they borrowed. Then at the end, they pay back the whole th the amount they borrowed. That's it. So if they borrowed 500, oh, well, okay. If they borrowed $10 million, all they pay for 20 years, and let's say they paid, they borrowed it at a coupon of 6%. All they pay every year is $60,000 for 20 years, every year. Then at the end of 20 years, they make one last interest payment, and then they pay back the $10 million at the end. They don't pay down the debt during its life. Now, the bondholders aren't going to be stupid. They're not going to wait and say, well, I hope they can pay, have that $10 million. No, they're going to have provisions to make sure that the company has that at the end. But other than that, that's the difference between consumer and corporate debt. Now, let me go through different kinds of bonds. There's, there are a lot of different bonds out there. The book focuses on a few, and I'll add a few, and I'll tell you which ones I'm adding. But the, the classic bond is the treasury. That's government bonds, treasury bonds. The government borrows money to pay its bills. It doesn't raise enough in taxes. We've had a major problem with that over the last 22 years. At one point, we were not borrowing at all. Through the 1990s, we were borrowing less and less. And then toward the end of the 90s, we weren't borrowing any. We had a budget surplus. It was, it was like amazing because we'd been going through borrowing money for years before that. And then during the President's, President Clinton's administration, well, we had it under control. Taxes were uh, a reasonable level. The stock markets were just booming. Employment was high. So tax revenues were fine. And so we were, got to the point where we did, the government didn't borrow. The Treasury did not have Treasury auctions, where it puts Treasury debt paper on the table and then lenders come and buy the paper. Didn't, wasn't going on. And of course, we couldn't stand that. We screwed that up. First, there was a phony claim in 2021-22 that the economy was going into a terrible recession, which it was not, and the Fed was involved in that unfortunate misstatement. And so we had to cut taxes down to the bone, the longest, deepest tax cuts in American history, 
which robbed us of that money that was coming into the treasury. And then we engaged in two theater wars, one in Iraq and then one in Afghanistan. And so we started spiraling into debt and we have never crawled back out again. And we're going heavily into debt after the insane tax cuts of 2017. We're never going to come out. But of course, that's not my problem. That's your problem. Uh, you'll live to suffer through that from that. But the Treasury borrows money. Riskless. It has you know, no default premium. But of course, the long term has a maturity premium. There's no liquidity premium. But it's government borrows. It issues treasury bonds, T-bonds, and that is how the government borrows money. It sells these, and the selling is the borrowing. That's how it works. Now, who buys those bonds? Who lends our government money? Well, the Chinese do. Well, how do they have the money? We give it to them. We buy their stuff and they collect the dollars in the People's Bank of China and then they repatriate it by lending us money. Gee, that's awkward. And of course, the Arab states do uh, lend us. Canadians do. Europe does. I mean, the whole damn world finances our hunger to have toys and doesn't want the taxes to pay for them. That's the way it goes. That's the way we are. That's being an American, for better or worse. Now, I should point out here a little bit of a, a nuance that's not brought up in the book. There is the borrowings by the government, but actually there are agencies of the government that issue their own bonds. They're not treasury bonds, they're called agency bonds. They borrow their own money, it's called agency paper. Agency paper, and it's, it's a pretty substantial amount of money. See, there are all of these authorities, like the Tennessee Valley Authority and all these others. They are sort of semi-independent. They have to raise their own money. And so they do so by issuing agency paper. One concern that you that some of us have a little bit, when you see the national debt, that's how much total we owe. A lot of times you're not seeing the agency debt included in this. But you know, it's enough to make you notice. Okay, now. The next type is corporate debt. Corporate. Companies borrowing money. Microsoft borrowing money. IBM borrowing money. Uh, Uber borrowing money. Tesla borrowing and borrowing and borrowing money. Just borrowing money for uh, their operations. Now they could sell stock and raise the money but and they do but they also sell bonds to raise money and corporate bond bonds and I'll get into this on Wednesday corporate bonds come in all kinds of flavors as far as maturity date uh, 
the quality of the bonds. Bonds are corporate debt is rated by three different agencies, Standard & Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch. Triple A is top of the, top of the line, the, the, the high grade stuff. No illiquidity premium, very small default premium, just a maturity premium, tracking treasuries, a 20-year treasury, at least theoretically, will have the same maturity premium as a AAA uh, corporate 20-year. So the maturity premiums are the same, but they do have a little bit of a default premium in them, a little bit. It's nothing complicated. And the calculation, you'll probably run into some problems about that in your homework. But, I mean, AAA is the best grade. And then AA, single A. Now, each of these rating agencies has its own letter symbols. So it drives me crazy trying to remember the difference between the top grade Moody's and the top grade Standard & Poor's, and then Fitch steps in there sometimes. But once you get to ratings of A, single A, or the ratings with B in them, or C, you're getting into a realm where we, okay, the, the, the street term is junk bonds. The, good, uh, the proper people's term is high yield bonds. Why are they high yield? Because they have to pay a high per percent on the coupon. For greater risk to the uh, lenders, so the lenders insist on a higher interest rate for them. So you'll see, I, 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 I'm trying to think. Right now, AAA corporate paper, you would probably see new issue coming out maybe seven, seven and a half percent, maybe less than that. But you get down there to that B, double B, or C, oh, those coupons are ridiculously high right now. High default premium, high risk. So they're more expensive. Now, interestingly enough, as a something of a side note, you may end up in some corporate position where you're involved in these kinds some kind of investments. The company has money, so it wants to put money aside into investments. Most companies, their policies, their policy will on this will be AAA only, or only AAA or AA. They, they will not invest in anything that is lower grade because these funds, they don't want to put them at risk of a default. So only the best of the best are acceptable. Uh, I'll break that corporate down a little more here in a little bit. But let me step out. Okay, municipal bonds. Munis. Munis are bonds that are issued by government authorities below the federal level. Like a state might borrow money. It issues munis, municipal bonds. A city, well, we want to uh, upgrade our 
water uh, pipes, it would issue a muni, borrow the money to do it, and then pay that money back over time to the lenders. A school district wants to build a couple of new schools, it will issue a school bond, a district bond. That's a muni. Now those are kind of interesting because oftentimes those are what we call revenue bonds because the agreement with the lenders is, okay, you lend us the money and we're going to increase our property taxes, earmark that extra to pay the interest on the bond. So those are revenue bonds. They're pretty safe, actually, because you know, you're just going to jack up your uh, property taxes. The danger can come, though, that, okay, you've got your property tax base in a, in a school district, okay? You borrow uh, for, let's say, 20 years to build some schools, and you tell the lenders, okay, we're going to increase property taxes enough so that that extra is earmarked to pay your interest. How could that go wrong? Well, it could go wrong if, if there's a serious recession and property values collapse. That would be a bad thing. So they're not riskless, but they're pretty low risk. Municipals have a couple, uh, an interesting feature. If you are, a, you sir, you're a lender. I'm a, I'm a school, uh, well, I am a city and I issue a muni to uh, upgrade the water and sewerage. Okay, great. A city's going to tax enough that it, the lenders aren't going to lend the money unless the city's going to show them that it can pay it back. All, it's all good. Sometimes, this, but, okay? So, as an investor, the nice thing about these is that the interest that the, in, the lender earns is tax exempt at the federal level. That's a cool thing. That means that the coupon on a muni can be lower because the rich people who would be hit with taxes on it, they don't have to worry about it. So anyone below the rich are, or high, high level banks and entities like that. So the interest rate on a muni can be lower by the tax rate because those investors aren't being taxed. That's why it would be foolish for anyone but the wealthiest to, to buy munis because they're not going to get the full impact of the tax break and so they're not going to get as much interest as they would if they just went fully taxable on fully taxable bonds. Okay, the other part about munis. Safe, well, unfortunately, we've had some pretty spectacular uh, defaults. The first one that really shook the markets was a long time ago. Uh, it was in Ohio. Cleveland defaulted on a muni. Matter of fact, I think, I think it was more than one muni. No one had ever thought a city would default on, a, on its debt. 
What do you do? Repossess the city? The lenders were just sitting there, uh, you, you, you're not supposed, you can't do that. Well, watch us, we're, we're defaulting. They actually defaulted and it really shook the muni market. The, the, the consequence was that munis used to have low, low interest rates, uh, coupon rates. Well, those went up because there was a new assessment of default premium in munis. So all munis went up. Other munis that have defaulted Detroit. And it's even worse than that. There are some states where lenders will say, yeah, munis are, have, let's say, 4% interest rate. But in some states, they'll say, no, this state, we don't trust it, 4.5, 4.75. There's one here, there is a uh, higher default premium here in Illinois. We have so much debt problem here in Illinois that investors in munis insist upon a higher interest rate because there is a higher probability of a default in Illinois. There are other states in the same situation where there is a higher default premium because investors are concerned that these munis could default. Not likely, but there's enough of a, of a probability that in lenders will say, yeah, we'll lend you money, but you're going to have to pay us more because you, you as, as, as borrowers go, you suck. Illinois is one of those states, but by no means is it the only state where this is the case. And it cuts across political dominance lines. Illinois dominated by the Chicago and the Democrats, but you look at other states and they are dominated by Republican uh, legislatures and governors, and they also, some of them have the same problem. Here in Illinois, it's because we spend too much. In some of these uh, Republican states, it's because they tax too little. So either way, the default premium on those munis is a little higher. That's all there is to it. Now, moving on from there, there are foreign bonds. Now, I get into these. If you ever want to come to the dark side and major in finance, I'll be more than happy to see you in my international finance class. Foreign bonds are a thing. They have been for a long time, but they are a thing. Essentially, a domestic U.S. MNC, multinational company, might borrow money, capital I should say, in euros. We want to borrow in euros, we will pay you your coupons, your interest in euros, and we will pay you back the uh, face value in euros. And you might think, well, why the hell would they do that? Well, if a multinational company is going to build a factory, let's say in Germany, 
wouldn't it seem reasonable that they would want to borrow in that currency so that they didn't have exchange rate fluctuations driving them crazy? Uh, that, that, yeah, they, and especially if they earn their, earn their money in euros, it would seem reasonable to pay bills in Europe in those euros because they are making money in those euros. So this is something like an, inter, uh, an exchange rate, rate hedge. And don't get me wrong, there are foreign companies that come here, Japanese companies that borrow in dollars. So those are Japanese foreign bonds because they are denominating in a currency other than the yen. There are, I mean, there are a, a number of countries that come to us to borrow money. Well, why do they come to us? Well, because it, it, there's so much capital here. All these massive investment groups that can take care of them uh, simply by uh, you issue it in dollars, we've got dollars, we'll do it for you. Now, in one of the countries where I teach, uh, in Central America, their they have their own currency, but it is pegged to the dollar. And so they, I mean, I can go anywhere there and I can give them the local currency or exactly the same amount, amount in American dollars, and they're happy either way. Now, interestingly enough, this creates kind of a funny situation because they will issue a foreign bond. Give you an example, a $1.2 billion foreign bond. Why is it foreign? Because they are going to pay it back in dollars. Well, must be wanting to raise money here in the United States? Uh-uh. The Chinese have trillions of American dollars, those ones I described to you, the ones we give them when we buy their cheap stuff. So the Chinese say, we've got American dollars, we'll buy your entire issue of $1.2 billion and everything works out perfectly. I was, I was down there when um, the, they issued the, um, the government down there issued two bonds that added up to, I think, 1.2 billion or some, uh, maybe it was 2 billion, but it was a ridiculous amount of money <laughs> in dollars. So they were issuing, borrowing in dollars to pay back in dollars. And the, the morning that the issue went, uh, went out the door, the Chinese subscribed it. The whole thing, like that. There wasn't a chance for anyone else to join in the offering of the uh, debt. The Chinese just said, we've got that many dollars. Uh, will you take a check? It, it was that fast, that, that clean. And so that gives you the idea of why foreign companies, country, companies that are in other countries, companies that are in other countries will issue foreign bonds denominated in dollars. A last one, and I, then I'll go through some other distinctions here, but in this category, I would be remiss not to mention gold bonds. 
Now, other metals can be used as the denominating currency or the denominating commodity, I should say. Commodity bonds, metal bonds, gold bonds, they pay in that stuff, whatever it is. I use gold as the classic example. We shall pay you back in gold. Anywhere in the world, you lend to us and we'll pay you back in gold. Not American dollars, not euros, not in anything but pure gold. The classic example of this, I might have already brought this up, but I'll give it to you again. When World War II ended, Europe was flattened. I mean, it was just rubble. Many places, especially in Germany, but also in France, in Italy, Spain, it was uh, just a, a catastrophic mess. Belgium, uh, just, uh, the, the whole area, the whole region was just shambles. If you, uh, you probably haven't seen it. It's been a few years back. There was a movie called Museum Men. It was about a contingent of soldiers who went over to recover art that the Nazis had stolen. And it, they gave some really good visualization of what the cities looked like. Uh, rubble uh, everywhere. Well, we decided we're going to, we needed to keep the Soviets, the Russians, from stepping up to the plate and saying, we'll take over, we'll impose communism, and we'll solve all your problems. What we had to do was find a way for the Americans to do it. And so we initiated something called the Marshall Plan. We were going to go and we were going to rebuild Europe ourselves, at least Western Europe, the part that the Soviets hadn't already confiscated. But, okay, this was going to require an insane amount of money. I mean a lot of money. Uh, in today's currency, it would just be staggering. But we were going to do it so that we could have Western Europe as our allies. We rebuilt you. We will be your influential beacon light in the uh, last half of the 20th century. Well, what did the U.S. do? It issued gold bonds. We will pay these bonds back in gold. Borrow the money. In other words, borrow the money so that we can rebuild Europe. And we will pay anyone who lends us money, we will pay you back in gold. And it worked. The issues were subscribed fully. We used the money to rebuild practically everything, down to neighborhoods, downtowns, and uh, buildings, government buildings, and museums, anything. But then came the time of reckoning when we had to pay back those bonds. And we paid them back in gold. Lots and lots and lots of gold. We literally nearly wiped out Fort Knox and a few other gold reserves. Now who did we pay that gold to? Well, as it turned out, the big lenders to the U.S. government for this plan were the old, wealthy European families. They lent us the money 
and we gave them back our gold. <laughs> Which, if, if, if you think about it, that, that, that's kind of galling, considering that we rebuilt their country and we wiped out our gold reserves, paying them back to rebuild our, uh, their countries. But there you are. We let it go. That's sort of a layout of the major bonds that you might run into. But don't get me wrong, I have run into some bonds that paid in things other than gold. And some of them are really strange. I'm not sure I believe it yet, but there are bonds that pay back in commodities like coffee, cocoa, and things like that. I don't know if that's really the case or if I was being bluffed, but it's possible. I mean, if you think about it, commodities hold their value. And, you know, things like dollars, they wither, they erode, you know, depreciate with inflation and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of an interesting thing that commodities do, if, you're, if you say, I want you to pay me back in gold or in or in something else, diamonds. That would have some resonance because of the way that commodities, certain commodities, retain their value. And in fact, increase in value with inflation, whereas dollars being paid back would be eroded by inflation. So that's out there somewhere to think about. Okay. Now, I keep bringing up a couple of terms. I've brought up a couple of terms a couple of times here. So let me go through the details of how a bond works, how it's created. And you will all do, well, not all of you, but most of you will eventually do a bond. You'll issue a bond to borrow for a house, or you'll issue a bond to borrow for some major investment if you become the captain of some big company. But one way or the other, it starts out with the lenders and the borrower getting together. Technically, they do it through the investment bank because an investment bank is still the one who's actually going to buy the issue. But one way or the other, they create what's called a bond indenture agreement. A bond indenture agreement. Now, I've been teaching this for decades, but it was only in the late 1990s that I actually ever saw one of these. It's a contract. It's a, it's a borrowing, it's like when you go to a bank to borrow for a loan. It's, but this thing is thick as all get out. It's a huge document. It's got every detail in it. Who's borrowing, who's lending, who, and uh, among the provisions in it are how much, what interest rate, now the interest rate is called the coupon. So if I say a 6%, an IBM 6%, 2042, that would, 2043, that would mean that 6% of how much they borrow is going to be paid every year. And it's usually paid in two installments. But don't worry about that. 
Now, the coupon can be, there are two kinds. There's a fixed coupon, which is very normal. And then there are some floating where the interest rate can vary. The most typical type is, the only ones that I'll ever talk about are the fixed. The only reason I ever talk about the floating is in a, I'm in an upper level fixed income class and I really hate floating. It's complicated to calculate anything on it. Okay. How much? The coupon. Okay. Then the date of maturity. In other words, the when you pay it when you pay back the principal. Like that IBM 6%-2043, you would pay it back at a specific date in the year 2043. So that would be a 20-year bond, the date of maturity. Now, among other parts of the bond, You might have a callable bond, a convertible bond, and a puttable bond. <laughs> you see all this terminology. You can try to memorize it or make a little section. I won't get too detailed on a test about this. But you do, if you are going to be a bond investor, which some of you might be, you need to watch out for all these different covenants. The covenants, covenants are the terms. And those, that thick document I was talking about, I mean the covenants just went on and on and on. Some of them, I didn't even know why they were in there. And it was in legalese that was making me have brain cancer. But, I mean, there are other things in, these, in this document, too. There are, there's this one. The trustee. The bondholders are going to have someone or some entity that's going to watch the company to make sure it doesn't do anything that would be adverse to the interest of the bondholders. So in other words, the board of directors says, uh, well, we're going to issue a really great dividend, $3 a share. Wow. And the bond trustee could say, no, you're not. Well, why not? Because we want you to put that money back into the company because uh, we want to make sure that we get our money. Or the company could say, well, we're going to take on this new project. It's really cutting edge. And the bond trustee would say, no, you're not. No, because you're making, putting the company at risk. And we don't want risk. We want to be paid. So you take on that risk. Yeah, the shareholders could really do good from it. Or the company could go to hell. We don't want that downside risk. So you're not allowed to do that. Some bond trustees have great power over board of director decisions. Some are weak. 
Usually the bond trustee is a law firm or an accounting firm or some individual that has a lot of experience. But one way or the other, the trustee is kind of a shadow figure overseeing the company to make sure it doesn't do anything too much fun. Similar to the fact that you borrow from me to buy a house. I'll put covenants in there. So you ha I know you had a plan. You were going to turn that place into an all-night soiree and all-you-can-eat uh, buffet in the back. And I'll say, no, you're not. No, you're not. It'll be right there in the covenants. You cannot do some things. And you'll see this if you ever borrow. You'll, if you look at the documents, there will be provisions that prevent you from putting the property at risk. Other things. Is it a mortgage bond? A mortgage bond is a bond that's backed by a specific asset. So the company goes belly up. Those bondholders who have a mortgage bond can say, that building is ours, liquidated, and all the proceeds go to us. The bondholders who don't have a mortgage uh, attachment, well, they just, have to hope that the liquidation of the rest of the company is enough to pay them off. So the mortgage, that's why you say, well, I got a mortgage on this house. Actually, no, you have a loan that has a mortgage attachment uh, to it. You buy a car that has a mortgage attachment to it. There's a, a promissory, the indenture, but there's a mortgage attached to it. A credit card loan is not a mortgage. Uh, these vacation loans, usually, well, sometimes they're like a second mortgage, but usually, sometimes they're not. But there are plenty of loans that are not mortgages, borrowings. Long term, notice that a mortgage bond would have a lower coupon than a non-mortgage bond. A non-mortgage bond is called a debenture. Non-mortgage bond is called a debenture. A debenture would have a higher coupon than a mortgage bond, simply because the mortgage bond, the lenders have a physical asset that they can take if there's a default. The debenture would not have that. That goes back to the default premium, that guarantee, so the default premium would be higher because there's more risk the, uh, of not getting anything if, the, if things go south. So there's mortgage bonds versus debentures. There's one other one I'm trying to think of. I was losing my concentration. Uh, oh, well, no. I scribbled something down here. Oh. Another one, 
sinking fund. I mentioned this earlier. A sinking fund. I'm a corporation and I borrow $500 million from you, madam. You don't look like you have that much, but I'm not going to question. Uh, I want to make sure that at the maturity date, you've got that original amount I lent you. Now, the old way of doing it was a covenant would say, you will, the company will put this much money into a sinking fund account every year. Let's say it's a 20 year, 20 more year bond. They would probably want it fully funded by say year 15. By the 15th year, you will have enough to pay us off. So we don't have to worry about it anymore. There's a new trick out there. Your book actually brings it up. And I was hoping that I could ignore it. But unfortunately, the damn book brings it up. So I'm going to mention it. An alternative to a sinking fund is what is called serialization. Works like this. I owe the bond back in 20 years. Okay, those bonds are trading out there in the market, buyers and sellers of secondary, in the secondary market. What the company might do is instead of guaranteeing a sinking fund, they will guarantee that they will buy back a certain amount of those bonds themselves every, say, year. So $20 million, okay, starting in year 10, I will buy back 5 million of the bonds in the secondary market, basically retiring them. Then the company the next year will buy back another 5 million. And one more time, the company will buy back another 5 million. So by the time we get to the maturity date, most of the bonds have already been retired because the company's bought them back. It would be sort of like if you had, let's say, a 30-year mortgage, and you paid off starting in, let's say, year 15. You paid off, let's say, 20% uh, of the balance on the loan. The next year, you pay off another 20%. And you keep paying it off by the time the loan is due, finished in the 30th year, you've paid it all off. You've bought back pieces of your debt every year. And interestingly, that has gotten kind of a little popular with wealthier people who borrow for a house. They've got a lot of extra money left over, so they just start buying back chunks of their mortgage every year after a certain amount of time. Just buying it back. That's the same thing. That's a serialization. Now, it's not a, not a formal agreement, 
What I'm talking about here, serialization with corporate bonds, is formal. The lenders and the borrower are agreeing that the borrower will buy back chunks of the debt, buy back bonds from the secondary market every year. Oh, Lordy. Just a couple of last terms here, just to, and then I'll kind of sweep back through a few things. Now, there's a concern I have right here warrants. Your textbook describes these very narrowly. Let me, let me give you an example of, from my consulting days. There was a company that wanted to raise a million dollars, and they wanted to go out of the gate at $10 a share. So they were going to issue 100,000 shares of stock at $10 a share. I mean, it wasn't going to work. No, we had some interest, but not nearly enough to subscribe, to fully subscribe the million dollars. So knowing that before the offering got very far, I filed amended uh, an amendment with the SEC and with the states that we were going to sell it in that we were going to sell stock. We were going to sell units. And the units worked like this. You pay us $10, and then uh, you get not just a share of stock, but you get a warrant that gives you the right, but not the obligation, to buy another share of stock at $12, regardless of what the stock price is in a year. So you see what that, it was like a sweetener. Look, if we could get this company underway, the stock price is going to grow, maybe 13 maybe $15 a share. In one year, you would have the right to buy another share of the stock at only $12. That's a warrant. It's basically an extra sweetener, like an, it's a call option, basically, on a share of stock. Now, in the book, they talk about this in terms of bonds. Sometimes a bond might not go out the door, uh, it might not be subscribed, a, a bond issue, let's say 50 million. The bondholder is going to say, I, no, I don't want, I don't, I, nah. But if they attach a warrant to each of the bonds, if our company's stock price goes up, you can get a share of stock at a price, a good price. That's where uh, the book is describing warrants, is in the context of bond issues. But be, be assured that the warrants can show up on stock, too. Now, an another interesting thing about warrants, and I, I, I will not hold you to this, but there are detachable and non-detachable warrants. A non-detachable warrant, you have to have 
the original thing you bought, like the stock or, in this case, the bond. Whoever holds the bond holds the warrant. That would be non-detachable. However, there are some warrants that are detachable. You can tear the warrant off and sell it on its own. And it's second, there is a secondary market for warrants. I bought a, a round lot of warrants last year, and I actually made a little money on them because the warrants, as, it got, as the stock price went up, the warrants became more and more valuable. So there you are. That was a lot for one day. Go home, okay?